Josh led us last week in a, a good discussion on, in the first of what's going to be two lessons on the friendship between David and Jonathan. Uh, and, and this week we're looking again at David and Jonathan, but we're throwing Saul into the mix. And it's kind of hard to talk about any one of the three without talking about the other two because they're intertwined and uh, the relationship the relationship between the three of them uh, could be described as dysfunctional, certainly, uh, and uh, there were issues that we're going to talk about this morning as we look at the latter part of 1 Samuel chapter 20. As, as Josh talked about last week, David and Jonathan had a, a beautiful friendship. It was a deep friendship. Jonathan was the kind of friend that, that any of us should hope to be and that any of us would be fortunate to have. If you look at the characteristics of, of Jonathan, he was, he was extremely loyal. He was loyal to, da- to David even at the, maybe the expense of his own uh, success. He was sacrificial in that. He was, he was concerned about David. He knew that David was, was destined to be the next king. He knew that that's what God wanted, and he was willing to sacrifice his own uh, place in the, in the royal lineage to, to make sure that David was protected from Saul. He was encouraging to David. Uh, we don't necessarily always think about how difficult that must have been for David in this time period for his father-in-law, the king, to be after him and having to be a fugitive, especially after all David had done. He had been Saul's armor bearer. He had fought Goliath. He had done all these things. And now to be a fugitive had to be very difficult. And and Jonathan was a friend who encouraged him during that time. So he was the kind of friend that, again, any of us would be fortunate to have and all of us should strive to be. Their friendship, while beautiful, was also probably an unlikely friendship because you had Jonathan who as the oldest son of Saul, would have been next in line to be king. Um, He would have been the the natural selection as the next king of Israel if if Saul hadn't uh, been disobedient to God and that opportunity taken away from him. And the ironic thing is, is he's friends with the actual next king. David has already been anointed by Samuel. He's already been selected, and Jonathan knows full well that he is friends with the man who will be the next king. And so it's it's not necessarily what you would picture as a friendship. It's more like you would think these two would be natural enemies, that they would be at each other's throats, that Jonathan would take every opportunity to, to help his father get rid of this threat to, to the dynasty. But instead, he, he goes the opposite route, which says certainly a lot about Jonathan and, and his attitude, his love for David, but also his trust in God, his love for God, because again, I, he certainly realizes that this is God's will and, and he's willing to uh, put his own success and, and even his family to the side to make sure that, that the will of, of God is done. And we'll talk more about that as we go through our lesson this morning. Uh, just to refresh your, your memories, Saul is on, on a steady decline here. He has, uh, he's one that started off with full of promise, full of hope, and he is on a steady downhill climb. His mental stability seems to be going downhill uh, all the time. Back in chapter 18, after David had slain Goliath and David has now started to fight the Philistines and have 
great success in, in killing Philistines, you'll remember that some of the, the women and, and maybe the men too, I don't know, began to sing. And do you remember what they sang about? Yeah. Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. And Saul didn't like that at all. I mean, he, he, that made him angry. The Bible says it made him angry. And, and he, he said, you know, they're ascribing to me thousands, but to David they're ascribing ten thousands. And then he said something I think is the key to why he is not a great king. He said, what more can he have but the kingdom? What was Saul's number one concern at this point in his life? Himself and his reign. His position was his number one priority. He, he now realizes that David is the number one threat to that kingship. And, and so he says, what more can he have but the kingdom? And there's a lesson in that for us because we see that in different areas of life. We see it sometimes in business. Somebody will get a position, and, and once they get this position, their number one objective seems to be holding that position or climbing even higher in that corporate ladder, maybe even at the expense of others in the organization. Uh, we certainly see it in politics. Right? Somebody gets elected to a position, and what do they immediately start doing? They start planning for the next election, right? They get elected, and on day one, their priority becomes not fulfilling their campaign promises necessarily, but how do I get reelected? How do I hold on to this position that I have? And, and those, those people, whether in business or in government, typically don't make the best leaders. Those that are more concerned about themselves than they are the people that they serve are not usually the ones that we look back and say, man, that was a really good you know, mayor or governor or executive or whatever it is. Um, if his number one objective was himself and remaining the king, that means his number one objective was not serving God. And, and we've already seen that. His number one objective also wasn't serving his people. You know, as king, yes, he's the king. He's over these people. But also a, a king has to be a servant of the people. And, and we've seen that too in his unwillingness to go and fight Goliath. His, we're going to see in our lesson this morning that his number one objective isn't even family because he tries to kill his own son in our lesson this morning. So certainly his self and his own uh, well-being is, is number one in his mind. And, and by trying to kill David, he is attempting to thwart God's will because God has already told him through Samuel that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him and is going to be given to another who's better than him. He realizes who that somebody is, who that number one threat to his throne is. It's David. And so in his mind, if he can kill David, and get David out of the way, maybe, maybe I can thwart God's plan to take away the throne from me. Now, I want to contrast that with another character in the book of Samuel, and that's Eli. Um, if you remember, Eli was a priest of God. Back in 1 Samuel 
chapter chapter three, Eli was was basically a mentor uh, to Samuel, and and Eli, while a good man and a good priest, was not a very good father. He had sons who were very wicked, did wicked things, and and Eli made sort of half-hearted attempts to get them back in line, but but they didn't. And so God reveals to Samuel in a dream that bad things are going to happen to Eli's sons. They're going to be destroyed and that no amount of sacrifice is going to change this. This is going to happen. Samuel isn't really excited about delivering this news to Eli, but Eli kind of kind of drags him, drags it out of him. And so Samuel tells him what God has said and, and the punishment that is going to be meted out to Eli's sons. This is his children, Eli's children. And I want you to see what Eli says about this in chapter 3, verse 18. Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him, the text says. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Now that's a pretty powerful statement from this priest. He has just found out that his sons are going to be destroyed because of their wickedness. That's a hard thing to hear. And to have the courage to say and the faith in God to say, if that's what God's will is, then that's what needs to be done. is a difficult thing for a parent to say. But Eli said it. And you contrast that with Saul, whose attitude was, I know what God has said. God has said the kingdom is going to be taken away from me, but I can do something about it. I can get rid of this threat to my throne and and stop what God's will is. Two different lines of thinking there that, that I think really tell us something and, and should be an example to us as we think about uh, how we react to the Word of God and what God has said in various, various situations. So uh, where we kind of left off with our lesson last week, with Josh's lesson last week, is David and Jonathan kind of, while they're friends, they see this situation differently. Jonathan sees it as he's already gone and talked to Saul, and and Saul has assured him that he will not kill David or attempt to kill David. And so in verse 2 of of chapter 20, Jonathan tells David that, Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without telling me, and why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. So Jonathan just could not accept, he did not believe that Saul was going to continue this assault on David and this this vengeful uh, trying to kill David. Uh, David's response in verse 3 is that your father certainly knows that I've found favor in your eyes and he has said, do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and and death. So even friends can disagree, and even for the closest of friends can see a situation differently. And certainly that's the case here. Jonathan just he believes his father, believes that he's not going to try to kill David. David, who has already been had a had a spear thrown at him twice by Saul, kind of sees the situation differently. He see he thinks, hey, Saul's after me, and I'm pretty close to death here. Um, so they devise a plan. David devises a plan. And the plan is essentially that David's going to skip the Feast of the New Moon. They have this feast. David would be expected to be there, and he's going to skip it 
and, and see, uh, Jonathan is going to go and see how the king reacts. Now, I'm not sure why David necessarily would have been expected to be at this feast if it was because he was part of the royal family. He was the son-in-law of the king. Uh, he had been his armor bearer. He was a great warrior who had killed a bunch of Philistines. But for whatever reason, he was expected to be at this feast. He had a seat reserved at the table with Saul. And so his, his absence would be noted by the king. And, and depending on he, how he reacted, Jonathan would bring back a report to David and let him know <clears throat> whether it was safe to come back or whether he needed to remain in hiding. And he would bring that report by shooting, <clears throat> excuse me, by shooting arrows into the area where David was, and the direction that he shot these three arrows would let David know whether it was safe to come out or not. Or not. So these three arrows were pretty important to David. They would let him know whether he was going to be a fugitive or whether it was safe to come back to the palace. And so that's where we're going to start our lesson. Is at this feast in First Samuel chapter twenty, verse twenty-four. The text says. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at the other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? I think it's telling of Saul that the first thing that came to his mind when David didn't show up for this feast was that he must be unclean. And, and there's a number of reasons in the Old Testament law that somebody might be unclean and it was typically for a day, and they could they could take care of things, and and then they would be clean the next day. And so his first thought is he must be unclean. Does that not denote to you a complete lack of self awareness of Saul or by Saul? I mean, it seems that he never considered the fact that maybe David wasn't there because of him that maybe the fact that he had been actively trying to kill David was why he didn't feel comfortable showing up <clears throat> and eating supper with him. And, and, but, the, but the text doesn't really point out that he thought that at all. In fact, he, it just says he must be unclean. He'll probably be here tomorrow. The other thing in this section that jumps out to me, how does, how does Saul refer to David? the son of Jesse. Can't even call him by name. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he, and he says it three times in this text that we're going to read. He calls him the son of Jesse three times. Why might you think that, that he chose to refer to him as that way? Lack of respect. Almost like he's trying to put him down. Right? Oh, this son of a sheep farmer. You know, he, he's not royalty. He's not, he's not worthy of being a king. He's the son of a sheep farmer, the son of Jesse. I'm not a, this is his son-in-law. So this is part of the royal family, this David is, but he, he can't even refer to him by name. It's, it's almost like he's 
as we say, tried to disrespect him, tried to disparage him, tried to remind those around him of, of sort of the humble beginnings of David and, and where, he, uh, where he was. And maybe he should just keep his place uh, down there. So uh, David doesn't show up the second day, though. And so now Saul realizes, no, it's not just because he was unclean for a day. There's, there's a deeper thing going on here, a deeper reason. So in verse 28, Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. In the previous chapter, in chapter 19, when Jonathan had, had talked to his father uh, about this, this matter of, of Saul trying to kill David, in verse 6, Saul had said, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. He had promised Jonathan that he was not going to make attempts to kill his friend David. And now in the very next chapter, he tells the truth. And the truth is, as, as Saul sees it, that he shall surely die. I will kill this threat to the kingdom. Of course, in his mind, and we kind of touched on this last week, Jonathan was, was acting foolishly in, in Saul's mind because he was giving up the, the throne. By helping David, he was helping the primary threat to this throne and also putting his life in danger. I think so. And I think that, that I think that would have. I think that's why Saul that may be one of the reasons that Saul was so upset because he he saw the fact that that was customary, right? To come in and kill not just the oldest son, but the entire family. Of, of the previous administration, the previous king. Now, that's something we don't necessarily relate to in our form of government, but in this day and age when they had kings, that was what was typically done. Like you say, they would come in and kill the entire family of the king. So in Saul's mind, he's looking at this and saying, you're signing your own death warrant. By helping David, you're ensuring that you and your brothers and sisters and anybody in our family are in danger. 
Uh, Saul, though, is unaware that Jonathan's already made a covenant with David, and David has agreed that when he does become king, he's going to take care of Jonathan, uh, who unfortunately wouldn't live to see that, but he's going to take care of Jonathan and Jonathan's descendants. Justin? You're going to be the king, so by you taking this alliance and this allegiance to David, you're going to be missing out. Yeah. And I think that just continues to go with Saul's pride and where he's putting himself on a pedestal and, you know, he can't get over that. I think you're right. Absolutely. And and we see the destruction of, of what pride can get us. And it, it certainly is, is, is leading to Saul's downfall in this. So... Um, yes, I think that was exactly what Saul is, is upset about. And in his mind, too, that David is just, he's choosing his friend over family. And, and, and that's a problem for Saul. And, and you look at it from Jonathan's perspective, he's somebody whose life is in constant danger. I mean, as the oldest son of the king, he's always in danger of, whether it be from the Philistines, whether it be potential assassination from even an Israelite, he's he's in constant danger, and now he's in this difficult position. Do I help my friend, or or do I stay loyal to my father, even though I know what God's will is, and I know what God wants, and that God ultimately wants David to to be king. And, and Jonathan realized, I think, that that God's will was going to be done, and he was going to side with David. And you look at Saul's reaction. You know, if there were any hesitancy in Jonathan's mind as far as Saul's intentions, they're they're gone now. He he once you have a spear thrown at you by your father, I would imagine things become a little more clear. Uh, I've been pretty upset with the girls, but I've never thrown a spear at them. Um, I did. I'll tell you this: the other day we I had a Zoom, uh, and and I was in my office, and Emma stayed with me. That morning, she stayed with me at work that morning, and I'd, I'd preach to her. Now, when I'm on this Zoom, I'm on camera, so you gotta you got to stay quiet. And, of course, it's like church. She didn't listen. And, and so she was over there making noise and stuff and moving around. And so I had a, a, a Post-it notes there beside me on the desk, and I threw it at her and hit her right in the head with those Post-it notes. And she looked up at me, and she didn't say another word for the rest of the Zoom. She knew why I threw those Post-it notes at her. Um, but there's a difference in throwing post-it notes and a spear. And, and, and Saul was, was so angry that he just lost complete control and, and attempted, attempted to kill his son Jonathan. And, and the author of our lesson goes into the, the word kill and the fact that it's translated, it has the same translation as the word strike and is used previously in 1 Samuel uh, to describe both John, Jonathan and Saul, the fact that they struck down their enemies, struck down the enemies of Israel. And so essentially he is, is treating his son as if he were an enemy. Because in his mind, I guess Jonathan now is an enemy because he's siding with David uh, against him. So we're going to skip down. Jonathan now... Uh, knows Saul's intention. He goes and he shoots the arrows in the direction that would let David know that uh, things were not good and that it wasn't safe to come out. And, and that was the end of the plan 
but it seems as if Jonathan couldn't just walk away even after delivering this message without seeing David another time. So down in verse 41, the text says, As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. If you research much about Jonathan and David and their relationship, uh, you'll find that it's a relationship that has been misunderstood over time by some people and, and misconstrued by some people. And, and there are those who try to take the relationship between these two and make it into something dirty, uh, to make it into something more than what it was. Uh, those people, I, I would say, are guilty of speaking where the Bible hasn't spoken. Uh, there's, there's no indication to me that, that this friendship is anything more than two close friends who were both interested in serving God and were both interested <clears throat> in the will of God. Now, they, they did things differently in their day. Uh, we may not go around kissing our friends the way that they did, but, but in, in that day and age, that wouldn't have been an uncommon thing. And so it's unfortunate that people have chosen to try to make that, their relationship into something that it wasn't. But in the time that we have left, I want to I try to make a comparison between Jonathan's choice and, and the choice that many today have to make in religion. Because Jonathan was in a, a situation where he had to choose between his family and following what he believed God wanted him to do. Because I think he, he knew that God wanted David to be king. And so it was a difficult choice, but ultimately he made the choice to help David, thereby following what God wanted. And so the question that, that I would pose is how many people do you think have died in their sins because they were unwilling to make the choice that Jonathan made? How many people have been unwilling to forsake family and family traditions to serve God? Uh, Mary? A lot. A lot, yeah. We, 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 we would be speculating on a number if we tried to guess. But the answer... Somebody, somebody from right from the church don't realize how hard it is to just follow this thing, your family's wrong. I've got to go my way. You're 100% right, and, and that's me. Uh, and I had that thought too, Barry, because... I up in a church. Yeah. Uh, and I had to more or less say my way to do it is hard to do. Sure. And, and I can't relate to that as someone who was re- raised in the church. And so I think for those of us who were raised in the church, it's easy for us to say, well, you just need to forsake family and serve God. That's easy to say. But to, to think about how difficult a choice that is, is is really really tough, uh, and I, and so I have a deep respect for people who have made that choice because I think it is such a difficult thing to move away from family to do what you feel like God wants you to do. Justin, just an illustration. There was a young man that uh, we were studying with years ago, and 
the reason why he wouldn't obey the gospel, and he was just flat out honest with it, he said, if I obey the gospel, then I'm condemning the rest of my family because he was coming from another faith. And that really, you know, got me to thinking now. He, he ended up obeying the gospel um, later on down the road, but it gets you to think in that thought process. That's a very that's a very difficult decision, and that's hard to do when you try to think of it from that perspective. Well, if I do this for me, then what am I, you know, in his mind, it wasn't just him doing it to obey it. He was condemning his family, and that was hard to overcome. And, and I think that's a pretty typical reaction that a lot of folks have when, when they're confronted with the truth and their parents didn't necessarily go that way and their grandparents didn't necessarily go that way. It's a tough thing. And, and again, those of us who were raised in the church may not fully comprehend how difficult that is to, to go a different direction and, and almost like you're going against family in, in deciding to, to follow Christ. Is, is it? If, uh, if you get, uh, well, uh, I guess uh, disapproval from the rest of your family, I mean tough disapproval. Sure. Because there are some instances where they, people, your family will cut you off. I've, I've seen it happen. That was, now, I I had to make that decision, that decision, but I didn't have that particular problem was about my family cutting me off or anything, but I have known people that yeah. didn't have that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Barry, did you have something? When I first started coming back in the 90s, so I've lived here so I couldn't see for him. But I still study. The the this story of Jonathan reminded me of the words of Jesus in, in Matthew ten. Uh starting in verse thirty four, he said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And if we read those words too fast, we can we can lose how difficult what Jesus is saying really is. And and he said that exactly what happened to Jonathan will happen to people today, and people will have to make a choice. And is it the right choice to leave family and serve God? Absolutely. Is it the easy choice? No. And so I think we all have to respect that. And as we study with people and talk with people who maybe were raised up differently than, than we believe or, or we're trying to study with them and trying to get them to obey the gospel, we have to be sensitive to the fact that what we ask people to do oftentimes is, is very difficult. We can beat people over the head with Scripture, um, but I think we also have to have a spirit about us of, of love and understanding as, as we study with folks. Other other comments or observations, Josh. Just with that passage that you just uh, read, Jesus didn't mince words about his purpose. Uh, there's a lot of people that proclaim, proclaim to be Christians that bring out the love of Jesus. Jesus definitely showed those things, but 
He didn't mince words about his true purpose of bringing everybody to God. It's not to make everybody happy. He's not there to bring peace on earth. He's there to bring everybody to God. And that's not the easy choice. That's right. And, and Luke uh, quoted it uh, a, a little differently, or it was uh, Jesus making a little bit different statement, but still in this same vein in Luke 14. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, did he, did he mean hate as in the, the, the thinking that we have of hate? I don't think so, but he meant you've got to love them less than you love me. You've got to love me first and foremost. And in that same context, he talks about counting the cost. He talks about the ones that builds the tower and starts to build. They get the foundation done and, and realize they, they're not able to finish it. And that's what Christianity, he says, you've got to count the cost if you're going to follow me. And it may cost you some, some earthly relationships, but that's what you've got to do. And, and again, that's, that's a hard thing to, to do and, and something we should be cognizant of, I think, as we study with people. Justin? No matter what the cost may be with those physical relationships, I think one thing we always got to keep in mind is the benefit of you gain an entire family and God's family too, no matter what. And that's where we have to be, you know, as as brothers and sisters, to embrace people that are struggling with with concepts like these, and with if 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 they get into a situation where maybe family has abandoned them, we can be that family. That's a good point, Justin. But. That's one of the main things that I got out of our, our text this morning and, and what Jonathan did, how difficult that must have been in reality. Brother Ed? We've, been, we've, we've talked about those who have been, quote, brought up in the church. Uh, and we need to all remember we are not to be what we are because of our parents or anybody like that, strictly for that cause. We thank, we're thankful for God, their parents, but all Christians need to constantly examine themselves and their own personal faith. Yep, absolutely. Very good point. I really appreciate your good comments this morning, a lot of good comments, and I think that makes the class more enjoyable. So, At least for me as a teacher, I'll put it that way. So thank you all. Have a great day.